So earlier this week, uh, Facebook upheld a ban on Donald Trump for spreading misinformation in the build-up to the Capitol uh, riots in January. And that follows his banning from other social media websites, including Twitter and YouTube, for pretty much the same offence, spreading dangerous and violence-inciting disinformation. So today we wanted to discuss what disinformation is, why it exists in the political sphere, how long it's been around for, and what, if anything, we can and should do to stop it. We hope you enjoy. We're going to be talking about misinformation and conspiracy theories this week. And this is one of those uh, fuzzy topics in social sciences where we use a word that everyone sort of agrees on, but no one agrees on what it means. So when we talk about misinformation and how misinformation is a problem, uh, everyone agrees with that. There are very few people who think that misinformation is fine and wish to have as much misinformation as possible. The problem is that lots of people disagree on exactly what is misinformation. One person's uh, conspiracy theory is another person's fundamental truth. So what we should do is go through some of our um, favourite conspiracy theories and misinformed ideas uh, to give an idea of the sort of thing that we're talking about. And for reasons that will become clear in a minute, we're going to divide them into three categories. The first category are um, in some ways the most interesting, in some ways the least interesting. These are the conspiracy theories that are curious because if even if they were true, they really wouldn't change the world in any way. Uh, and these are often quite funny just for how sort of banal they are. So, so go on, what's your, what's your favourite from the first category? Uh, so there, there's a wide range to pick from here. Uh, you obviously have the, the bog-standard cryptid conspiracy theories, things like Bigfoot, the Yeti, uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Um, you have the, the replacement theories that, that various figures like Avril Lavigne or um, Paul McCartney have, have died and been replaced. Um, I think my favourite one, just for the sheer weirdness of it, is Denver International Airport, uh, because there are some slightly weird murals um, and paintings on the wall at the airport, uh, and some people have interpreted this as evidence of a new world order, and believe that there is a giant underground compound under the airport, which is the headquarters for the Illuminati or the Lizard People, or some other kind of uh, secret cabal. I love that because there is obviously uh, in an airport a really logical explanation for why there might be a few secret passageways for staff to dive down to avoid security, etc. But but no, that is that is of course clearly evidence of, of a, a secret world controlling cult. Um, I think I think my favourite are the replacement theories. Uh, for those people who don't, this is the idea that various celebrities have died and been replaced by clones, um, which which I love because if that were to be true. Surely the, the existence of advanced cloning technology, which is being hidden from the rest of us, is the story. But that's never the focus of the conspiracy. The focus of the conspiracy is always, oh, don't listen to Avril Lavigne. That's not really her. That's a clone. Um, which I think, <laughs> even if you've adopted that worldview, is just missing the point. But anyway, um, that's... Any more to add? Um, I always find the, the alien ones quite interesting as well, because... I do think, on balance of probabilities, there is there is life somewhere out there in the universe. Uh, but the fact that the aliens in conspiracy theories always appear suspiciously humanoid and human-like and able to communicate with humans uh, and, and use technology, which is very familiar to us, 
um, kind of betrays how banal and creative they are. And that's that's a good one to, to lead into what we're going to talk about later and where these come from. I think that there's sort of uh, statements put out by scientists that are horribly misinterpreted by people who don't really understand what they mean. That, you know, the as you said, the maths is, given how many planets there are out there in the universe, that some sort of little grub or worm or bacterium or something is wriggling around on one of them. Um, and, of course, this is this is... Misin- <laughs> misinterpreted as meaning that Mars attacks is, is, is truth and, and, and not fiction. Um, absolutely. The point is that this group of conspiracy theories are uh, worth a laugh, really. They're not harmful. Uh, if they are true, it doesn't really change our understanding uh, of the world in a big way, and they're not really causing any damage. The second category we're going in, to go into are those which are to some degree harmful. Um, Not massively, and usually just harmful for the people who believe them, but which often uh, betray a significant lack of understanding of science, which, if it were widespread, uh, could potentially be a problem. So the example that springs to mind is a general field of quack or or fake medicine, Uh, and a surprising number of people don't really understand or or believe that things like homeopathy for example uh, or acupuncture or traditional chinese medicine don't have any uh, scientific backing behind them um definitely there might be a placebo effect uh, and i'm not saying placebos can't exist but there is no mechanism to show how they actually work uh, and there are no clinical studies or, or double blind studies to show that they are effective um and of course on their own in in itself they're not actively dangerous if you if you take a tiny tiny distilled element of of poison which has been diluted 500 times uh, in the belief that it will somehow you know cure you it's not really going to have an effect on your body because it's just water but if you use that in place of actual medicine then you will die um and this is not just the case for homeopathy this is the case for all kinds of um uh, claimed herbal or, or natural remedies uh, which don't have any effect at all on, on dangerous diseases or things like cancer or AIDS uh, and can therefore in fact uh, you know lead people to die so another example that I can think of um, where this is particularly bad is the former president of the Gambia Yaya Jame who claimed that he had a cure for AIDS uh, based on bananas and other traditional West African herbs uh, and basically made people in his country take this treatment instead of actual, you know, AIDS, HIV medicine, and therefore led to hundreds or thousands of deaths. So what we mean by this second category of somewhat harmful conspiracy theories or or misinformed ideas is that they are mostly harmful to the people that believe them. Take homeopathy, for example. If you're sick and you only take a homeopathic remedy, you're um, no more likely to get better than if you took nothing at all, and if you're issuing medicine to take homeopathic remedies, uh, then you are raising the likelihood that your disease becomes more serious and you have complications. But you're not endangering anyone else. Only the person who is um, subjecting themselves to quack medicine is in danger. However, the question then uh, arises as to how these conspiracy theories spread and whether they're allowed to be spread because while you're not damaging anyone else by getting acupuncture or going to see a chiropractor um, you may cause damage to someone else by convincing them that 
that could uh, cure them of serious diseases. So they're in the sort of iffy category in the middle where they can be dangerous, but mostly just to the people who believe them. And of course, as we said, those beliefs in category two, uh, or those conspiracies in category two, aren't really dangerous on a social scale unless you have someone that can force other people to act as if they are true, or unless sufficient people are convinced of its veracity. But once that happens, uh, we would say that they move into category three, conspiracy theories which form actively dangerous cults. One example of this is QAnon, uh, which is very active in America and especially uh, in the background of Trump's political movement. Uh, QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory which claims that a, a secret ring of, of pedophiles and Satan worshippers and Jews is controlling the world. And key members of this ring are Barack Obama, and uh, Hillary Clinton and the Hungarian Jewish billionaire George Soros uh, and collectively they're running uh, an underground pedophile ring in a pizza restaurant in the basement of a pizza restaurant which actually doesn't have a basement um, and the belief of QAnon is that Trump was the promised saviour that would uh, come and expose all of this and arrest all of the, the elite liberal members of this paedophile, Satan-worshipping, Jewish, blood-drinking ring. Uh, of course, this hasn't happened because it's not true. Uh, but this is something which is actively dangerous because people that believe in that uh, genuinely then believe that high-ranking members of the Democrat Party are evil and that action must be taken to remove them from office or uh, to prevent them being such a threat and that will then escalate into political violence and attempted assassinations um, and generally the destruction that we saw in the aftermath of the capital riot and as you mentioned there uh, there is a strong anti-semitic sort of theme running right through QAnon as well and that's really what makes these third category uh, conspiracy theories uh, part of that third category is that people believing these things poses a danger to other people outside of the cult. And in the case of QAnon, this is mostly going to be um, Democrat voters, Democrat uh, members of the Democratic Party, and Jews in America. Um, and for evidence that QAnon are dangerous, there are also plenty of um, sort of anecdotes we can turn to for that. Uh, one involved a armed gunman turning up at said pizza restaurant in Washington um, is still, I still find it amazing that there is a specific pizza restaurant that uh, apparently is, is the center of this um, and threatened staff uh, and, and diners uh, claiming that he turned up to save the children. But of course the most important comes from QAnon's belief in numerology. So QAnon is fed by a sort of shadowy mythical figure who probably doesn't exist called Q who leaves uh, very cryptic messages on various websites uh, and his followers find these and uh, and interpret them and a lot of them in, involve sort of numerical clues for what Q predicts is going to happen it's in the like future. A, it's like a racist escape room. Um, and uh, one of one of the favourite sort of ways of interpreting these numbers that QAnon supporters have is as dates on which particularly important things are going to happen. And one of these important dates on which QAnon supporters were sort of rushed to action by the conspiracy theory was the 6th of January this year, which was of course the date of the Capitol riot. And a lot of the uh, rioters, um, trespassers I suppose is probably the best word for them, were QAnon supporters. And another 
conspiracy theory which we feel is particularly dangerous and is linked uh, to some degree with QAnon but is also believed much more broadly is that of replacement theory. Uh, and replacement theory is the idea that there is a concerted, intentional, systematic effort to replace, uh, air quotes, native white populations of Western countries with uh, black people and Asians and basically non-white people. Uh, and that the purpose of this is to slowly and gradually wipe out Western civilization and white people through demographic replacement. Again, obviously untrue, but this has previously led to significant violence. Uh, for example, in Pittsburgh in 2018, I believe, uh, there was a shooting at a synagogue. And the reason that there was a shooting at the synagogue is because a key element of, uh, a key element of replacement theory is that this uh, replacement of white people by black people and Asians is orchestrated by Jewish people and that they are the, the overarching uh, kind of puppet masters in this conspiracy. It is a very interesting thing and I've thought about this a lot and read about it and uh, thought about why anti-Semitism is such a common feature of conspiracies uh, involving ethnic minorities. Uh, and this is, my, this is my hot take on it and you might disagree. Uh, but I think the reason for this is that in these white supremacist conspiracy theories, uh, black people and Asians are generally viewed as inferior in some way, and white people are the master race, they're more intelligent, um, they're, they're more capable, and these like barbaric hordes are rushing in to replace them. Uh, at the same time, then, it doesn't make sense that they have the cognitive capacity to plan such a well-thought-out process. So Jewish people always have to be substituted in as the shadowy, intelligent puppet masters orchestrating the hordes against white people. Yeah, I I would actually disagree with that. I think you're giving them a little too much, too much credit for thinking it through. There, um, I would simply say it just comes from a long, long, long tradition of uh, anti-Semitism in Europe, um, and that these these new conspiracies, um, whenever they rise, like to try and um, delve into historical record and try and find some legitimacy, especially from um, biblical stories. And of course, there are lots of biblical stories that paint Jews as as the enemy uh, or as, as as a problematic group in whatever way. Um, there is a long history of um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like the Illuminati that have been around for for a very long time. Um, and I think it's it's simply just fitting into that tradition rather than any sort of. Uh, I use the word logical very, very um, liberally here, but sort of attempt to logically think through why uh, the Jewish people are somehow the enemy. Uh, and that does actually bring us quite neatly into the, the notion that conspiracy theories are not actually a new thing. Uh, conspiracy theories have been around for hundreds, thousands of years, um, all the way back to, to, to my knowledge, there are probably older ones, at least back to the time of the Roman Empire. Um, there was a very weird conspiracy theory that Emperor Nero hadn't actually died. Uh, he was a very unpopular man. Uh, but the theory was he hadn't actually died. He'd fled to the eastern parts of the empire, where he was slightly more popular, and would return to overthrow the new emperor and re-establish his control over Rome uh, and turn it into a, an into a even more horrific dictatorship. Uh, than the dictatorship it already was. Um, you then have uh, witch hunts as well, which weren't a, a medieval phenomenon as as they're commonly uh, misconceived of as, but an early modern one. Um, but that was also based on the, the conspiracy theory that the withering of, of crops and things going wrong were the intentional work of a group of, of witches or, 
or magical woman rather than you know droughts and, and things going wrong in general um as we've talked about in previous podcasts anti-vax theories are, are considerably older than the modern era of social media there were anti-vax conspiracy theories as soon as there were vaccinations against smallpox so um these are not new things these anti-semitism uh, in particular are conspiracy theories which have been around for hundreds or thousands of years and this is a very common phenomenon that we end up talking about in lots of different um, spheres is that when something appears an idea a belief uh, uh, an ideology whatever that appears to have very sort of uh, modern uh, elements to it people think of it as as a part of modern society and assume that the cause of this idea this belief this movement whatever is some aspect of modernity usually social media it's the, it's the poor teenagers who just want to send bad photos of their cakes to each other that always get blamed for this um and conspiracy theories are no different there have been tinfoil hats longer than there have been tinfoil um and Part of the reason that I think people don't necessarily see this or understand this is A, uh, a lack of historical knowledge, but B, conspiracy theories and folk myths and legends that are seriously believed by people are not something that is sort of particularly important to record. And so before mass literacy, when there's only a very small number of people who are able to write and to record things, um, they're sort of not high up on the agenda of things which are worth recording. And it's only in relatively modern times when a huge number of people have access to the ability to record their thoughts and ideas on just about everything that we see these things more. But that doesn't mean that people have only just started to believe complete nonsense in the modern era. It just means that the nonsense people believe has suddenly become more visible. Yeah, so in, in terms of the, the visibility point, first of all, I think that's definitely true, that in the past people obviously believed in, in ridiculous things, but it's more evident to us now because there is a greater body of agreed-upon knowledge and facts that people say, you know what, this is absolutely objectively true, and so it's easier to spot outliers from that agreed consensus. Uh, in the past, if there wasn't as much of an agreed-upon consensus, then the outliers are just harder to spot. Um, secondly, I do think that although conspiracy theories aren't an entirely new thing, um, modern technology has to some degree accelerated the rate at which people with different conspiracist ideals can clump or agglom agglomerate together and form new, bigger, more dangerous conspiracies, as in the case of QAnon, uh, which was preceded by many other uh, anti-Semitic and racist and anti-state conspiracies, which merged into this chimera, um, this like monster bringing all of those far-right loons together. And we will definitely dive down the rabbit hole of the relationship between social media and misinformation in a minute. Um, but before we go there, there may well be a couple of listeners uh, sat there at the moment thinking, well, I, I've, I've been to a chiropractor before, I've, I've got acupuncture, um, uh, there is definitely one listener out there who we know believes in the Illuminati, um, and so I suppose the next question that we should address is, how does one know a conspiracy theory when we see one? One one thing that I would say about spotting conspiracies is anything which presupposes uh, that a task of enormous and unimaginable complexity, like making the world appear around and making sure that planes 
you know, don't fly into the ice wall at the end of it, or or ships don't sail off, uh, or you know, the the thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people that would need to be in on a conspiracy to load up the World Trade Center with thermite bombs uh, and then fly a hologram plane into it uh, and then vanish all the people that were on the real planes to make sure that no one ever found out. Um, all, all the number of people that would need to be in on a in any of the QAnon uh, or replacement theories. If we compare the complexity of those tasks to the available resources uh, and and you know visible competence of governments that we see around the world, uh, it's highly unlikely that any of those things are actually happening. Um, and my fallback example for this is always if in the USA. Um, the president couldn't keep an affair between him and his secretary under wraps when literally only the two of them knew about it. There is no way that a conspiracy involving tens of thousands of people could ever be kept indefinitely under wraps in the same way. And that highlights somewhat what I think is the key misunderstanding behind that kind of that kind of thinking of conspiracy theories that there is this this grand organization called the government uh, that are out to get us and are doing whatever is. The, the simple misunderstanding of thinking of the government as one entity, one block with one mind that works in one way, and not having the simple realization that actually the government is an extraordinarily complex collection of millions of people's professional lives. And as part of the government, we have thousands of civil servants. It's not just politicians, but we also have lots of politicians who... Um, work for lots of different parties that believe lots of different things and hate each other and fight each other on all sorts of issues but apparently get together and agree on whatever this particular conspiracy theory is um, all the sort of publicly paid uh, people who are technically part of the government all of these people have their own different jobs within it uh, but they have their own personal lives as well and generally realizing that the government is a massively complex unwieldy organization i'm beginning to sound like a libertarian here that's not what i mean um and not one homogenous block one sort of shadowy little group of, of five or six people who sit around a, a comically large table in some underground lair in geneva um or under, that, or under denver international airport or under a pizza restaurant in washington um that's not what the government is. And just a sort of a basic understanding of the political process actually goes a long way to dispelling that kind of that kind of thought. And I think there are two two logical fallacies at play here which feed into uh, conspiracism of that sort. The first, as you've said, is the tendency uh, to, when we view something from the outside, see it as a unitary body and ignore all the complex workings within it. And I think anyone who's ever worked in an organization or been part of an organization knows how complex office politics and the disagreements between people at different levels and even people at the same levels can be. Uh, bodies look unitary from the outside, but once you're inside them, you realize how complex they are and how hard it is uh, to gear them towards a single aim. And I think the second logical fallacy is the, the tendency to see intentionality where there is none and to assume that everything has to be the product of someone intentionally planning it to be that way instead of just being the accidental product of many people uh, doing things and this is the this is the resultant effect and it feeds in nicely to what we were talking about last week and nationalism as well that that kind of worldview tends to see 
not just in terms of the government, but tends to see the world as divided up into groups of people who are all the same and think in the same way and have the same objective. And if you get past that and realise the sort of colour and complexity and diversity and individualism of, of everyone, then it's impossible to think the Muslims are trying to replace us. You know, the Jews are taking our money. It's impossible to say the X group of people want Y because you realise that whatever X and Y you put into that, that's not true. Any sentence that begins with the Jews all something is not going to be true because there is there is no sort of one thing. Every Jewish person is, is individual and different and wants something different. Um, and th- this, is, this is something of a side note, um, but it is a joke amongst the Jewish community that they are notoriously... Uh, you know they're, they're notoriously good at disagreeing with each other, and you know if you have if you have two Jews in a room, you'll have three opinions. And um, there's actually a very funny story about the last two Jews in Afghanistan in uh, Kabul, who ended up in uh, in jail together because they had been arguing with each other so much, and they built different synagogues because they refused to go to the same one, and they argued with each other so much that the Taliban let them go <laughs> because they were so annoyed by the bickering. Um, anyway, as a, as a huge side note, but. Any, anything which ascribes, uh, you know, a common set of actions to a massive group is, is obviously a simplification. I think another thing that we have to look out for in terms of identifying uh, conspiracies is whether or not they can be falsifiable or whether they can be tested and whether there is some evidence which would, say, which would prove them uh, to be untrue. And if we look at conspiracy theories, usually what happens is they'll make a set of predictions about how the, wo- how the world works and if something in reality contradicts their predictions, then the conspiracy theory will mutate or evolve uh, in order to accommodate that. And we've seen that repeatedly with QAnon, uh, and the central tenet of QAnon is one day there will be this event, the storm, uh, which is when this secret ring of uh, paedophiles and murderers and, and, uh, and Jews will be exposed. Um, and they predicted it at the start of Donald Trump's presidency and then in 2017 uh, and then repeatedly in 2019, a few times in 2020, uh, you know, on the day of the election and then uh, on the day of the Capitol riots and then on the day of Biden's inauguration and then for some reason on March the 20th, 2021, because they thought that was like secretly the, the proper inauguration date and it never happened. And each time obviously a few people would flake off from the conspiracy theory and realize it's not true but by and large most people would double down on their beliefs and say you know what there's a secret plan we can integrate this into the belief system fundamentally if something is unfalsifiable and if there is never a piece of evidence that could be put forward to disprove it it is a conspiracy theory and it is not true and i it's probably worth at this point Uh, pointing out to listeners exactly what falsifiable means simply because a lot of people get it confused with false so if i say something like there's a jumper over there in the corner of the room yes there is (laughs) we we can both see it is definitely there that is a falsifiable statement though because had we looked over to the corner of the room and not seen a jumper lying there we would realize that that statement is false whereas if i say uh, there's a unicorn over there in the room uh, I can't see it. Ah, that's because it's invisible. Could I walk up to it and touch it? Oh no, no, no! Humans can't feel it. You, you have to, you have to feel the 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 energy within you of the unicorn before you can notice the unicorn. I don't feel it. <laughs> well, then you'll never see the unicorn. Um, the unicorn is now unfalsifiable, right? I have, I have an answer for any possible empirical observation that it's not there, and 
that kind of line of arguing uh, is something that you see a lot in conspiracy theories, especially those which involve, as we said, a sort of shadowy secret government force, uh, the deep state being the term for that that QAnon has has made almost mainstream now, um, that they have some sort of mind control drug or smoke and mirrors technique to mean that we don't see any of the uh, ramifications of, of this conspiracy. Um, and therefore there is no sort of evidence that we can put forward no data no statistics no observations that can prove or could prove this theory to be false so that's very briefly how you can sort of spot a conspiracy theory or a piece of misinformation um, if it's circulating on social media but the question still remains given that as we've said some of this misinformation can actually be very dangerous or have dangerous consequences uh, if people believe it. How do we prevent that spread uh, from occurring, especially in the modern world where we have so many different channels of communication uh, available to us? Um, so as we've said previously, obviously there are some conspiracies or, or untruths that are really not that dangerous to anyone. If you believe that Elvis Presley is still alive, it fundamentally doesn't matter. Um, even if it is totally unfalsifiable, there is no reason why that needs to be regulated because it causes no harm uh, to anyone else. And likewise, there are loads of unfalsifiable beliefs in the category of religion, which we would definitely say should not be regulated or prevented. Pretty much all religious supernatural claims are unfalsifiable, um, but there is no reason for us to patrol them or regulate them uh, or, or ban them. If someone wants to believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that the Prophet Muhammad went up to heaven on a winged horse, that's fine, that's their prerogative, it doesn't harm anyone. Uh, but when we get into the realm of what we've described as dangerous conspiracies, uh, then we run into a tricky problem about when the government or other bodies should regulate speech. Where, where we'd like to start off is by looking at social media, because we started this podcast by discussing Donald Trump's ban from Facebook and YouTube and Twitter uh, by the CEOs of those platforms, uh, for the spreading of disinformation and QAnon conspiracies and uh, claims that the election was rigged and thereby inciting violence. And there is an interesting debate about whether social media platforms should be able to censor users or censor certain views. Uh, to, to simplify the debate, on one hand, people say, well, social media companies are, are companies. They are private entities. They should be able to do whatever they want because companies are allowed to extend or restrict their platform or services um, as they as they see fit. On the other side of the argument, people would claim that whilst tech or social media companies are, strictly speaking, private companies and not the government, they have such a monopoly over online discourse and online discussion that there isn't really an alternative place for people to go to if they are banned from those major platforms. Uh, and in that sense, whilst it is not currently illegal for social media platforms to, to regulate people's speech, um, the argument is that they should be treated uh, as almost extensions of the state or vital platforms and that they should not be able to ban people um, no matter what uh, the speech is. And there are lots and lots of points to make on this on this topic. There's a lot of different things to delve into. One of the points that we've made before when we've when we've touched on on free speech in this podcast is that a different level of scrutiny is appropriate for um, people of different levels of sort of public image. So if 
your uncle sends a WhatsApp round to your family claiming that his Ayurvedic therapy session was really successful. Um, that is obviously not of the same level of misinformation as uh, Prince Charles is a big uh, proponent uh, of of homeopathy um, and has definitely been caught before uh, lobbying various politicians to make homeopathy available on the NHS and uh, uses the public platform that he has, regardless of whether you believe he should have a platform he does, uh, to push homeopathic quack therapies, that is going to cause much more damage to much more uh, to many more people because as a sort of uh, trusted public figure, I, I'm putting that phrase in, in air quotes, um, more people are likely to hear his message, more people are likely to believe his message, and more people are therefore likely to forego proper medicine for homeopathic remedies and potentially uh, end up being very ill indeed. Yeah, so I think definitely that there is a need to distinguish between platforms of uh, of varying influence, and there isn't really a massive need to, to regulate platforms on a you know, on a very grassroots level, um, it is probably more important to regulate the speech of people who have uh, the ability to influence many more people. The question still remains, though, if we give social media platforms this power, how do we know that they will use it to kind of accurately identify misinformation and dangerous mistruths and remove those people or those things from their platform? How do we know they won't use it to just remove anything which is critical uh, of their platforms or of political movements that they're aligned with, uh, how do we know that they won't abuse it uh, for for their own gain? Um, and for social media, that is that is a very pertinent thing. Um, it is more economically lucrative uh, for social media platforms to have controversial and uh, polarized views uh, because it generates more debate, it generates more clicks, it generates more ad revenue. Um, and so there is no incentive really for them in the monetary sense uh, to move towards a more moderate, logical debate. Uh, in fact, there have been loads of, of studies done uh, suggesting that in Myanmar, topic we discussed previously, that Facebook was instrumental in the radicalization uh, of loads of people in Myanmar against the Rohingya uh, in the belief that they were invaders trying to take over the country and that to, to a large extent enabled the genocide to happen on the scale that it did. Um, so we do run into that problem that if we hand this power over to social media companies, we have no guarantee that they will exercise it responsibly and ban objectively uh, identified conspiracists who are dangerous. Um, we have no guarantee they will just not do it uh, based on what's good for them. Another serious problem that we run into in, in censorship of, of dangerous misinformation online is... Uh, the difference, and here we might draw a distinction between misinformation and conspiracy theory, because those people who believe in, say, the healing power of crystals, uh, who in my opinion are of, of particular worth of mockery, um, w for those of us who believe in science and proper medicine, will say that we're just not open-minded enough, and if uh, some sort of message is put on their um, social media presence or their online presence saying this is not true or this is not backed by evidence or this is not supported by the NHS or whatever um, that may well work in, in, in dissuading people and their response to that is going to be something along the lines of you're not open-minded enough it may work when it comes to conspiracy theory and when a large part of the misinformed idea that people have is that there is this shadowy force of control be it the government be it big business 
be it George Soros, he always comes in for a, for a hard time, George Soros. I've never quite understood it's why. He, it's because he's rich and Jewish. And, yeah, I think it is just because he's, he's, he's rich and yeah. Jewish. Um, so it's, all, it's all the man boxes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, for those people who believe that, that these forces are out to get them and out to silence them, uh, who sort of see themselves as being the protagonist in a dystopian film where only they know the truth about the, the sort of evil government organisation, um, censorship may actually backfire and strengthen those people's views because central to their belief is the idea that they hold the truth and the world is trying to silence them. So forcibly trying to silence them may actually uh, empower, to a certain extent, those groups. Whilst I think that is true to some extent, I do also think in in certain cases, um, banning individuals who are spreading dangerous conspiracist views from social media platforms actually has a largely beneficial effect. And yes, of course, there will be people who respond to it by claiming this is more evidence of the deep state trying to suppress them. Um, but by and large, the, the failure or the inability of those individuals to further spread disinformation and conspiracy uh, outweighs that minor backlash. Um, immediately, I'm thinking of the example of Donald Trump, who once banned from Twitter and to a lesser extent Facebook and YouTube, has really fallen off the political map. Um, he, he hasn't been as influential in shaping the public debate because he doesn't have his main public platform and bereft of Twitter and bereft of the presidency, he has resorted to setting up a B-rate blog um, or his own social media platform, but it's nowhere near as influential. And there are still people in the Republican Party who are committed Trumpists, uh, but nowhere near the same degree as when he had access to those platforms. Absolutely. Um, and to critique the point that I put forward myself, I think that, that we can sort of view this as there being a trade-off between um, censorship, reducing the extent to which those uh, views are shared, but intensifying those views within the group. And as you say, in most cases, that is probably a trade-off that's worth making, that banning QAnon posts on Twitter or whatever um, probably enrages QAnon supporters and makes them uh, more convinced of their position, but it prevents that kind of poisonous idea from coming into contact with more people, uh, prevents its spread, and on balance is probably uh, beneficial. One of the, the problems with, with providing uh, social media platforms with this power to remove uh, users' views or users' posts if they consider them to be offensive or incorrect or, or, or dangerous or whatever is the fact that social media is such a concentrated market. So to throw a little bit of what some people might call unnecessary economics into this, um, <laughs> social media is a really interesting sort of good or service uh, because it displays something known as network economies of scale, which is a complicated name for a very simple idea. Um, and the simple idea is that m most things that you buy only provide value to you. And when you're judging how much value you get from it, you think about how you will use that thing and how much you want that thing. So if I'm buying... A loaf of bread I think about how hungry I am and how many sandwiches I might eat this week and whatever I, I don't care how many other people out there are eating sandwiches it doesn't bother me if you eat bread or not um, not a problem I just think about myself and how much I want that but when it comes to social media platforms the value of having a profile on that social media platform to an individual is dependent on how many other people within that person's social platform use it um, if you have 
you know if someone invents a new social media platform which is really good it's got loads of fantastic features and it's really quick and it looks gorgeous and whatever uh, but no one else is on it and no one else ever goes on it it's it's useless to be the one person who owns this new thing uh, and so because of this there is a natural tendency for people to gather into a small number of them and that is part of the problem because in a market where there are lots and lots and lots of, of different companies offering the same thing uh, and companies are allowed to remove users posts one company goes a bit far starts removing posts that aren't really offensive what should happen is people move away from that and start using the others and we have this sort of shift around and and people almost democratically find the right balance but that's not the world we live in we live in a world with a very small number of of social media platforms and so there aren't those options currently at least for people to sort of migrate to if the way in which one platform is policing uh, speech on it is deemed to be too far with the possible exception of things like telegram which have now sort of collected all of the far-right loons as you called them quite accurately earlier on uh, into one place so i guess the logical extension of this argument would be then um if it is not democratically legitimate for firms to make these decisions because corporations and firms are not elected bodies they represent their own interests not that of the general populace then it should be the government which is in in most western countries democratically elected it should be the government that sets the regulatory standards and enforces them rather than firms themselves um, and this would seem to be a better argument from the point of democratic legitimacy, as in if you elect a government, then it presumably has um, popular support or a consensus of support behind it to set certain regulations and make certain changes. Uh, this, however, then runs into its own difficulties because, of course, in an ideal world, every government is democratically elected and it then enacts the will of the people. But in practice, we know that people in government can do things for their own personal benefit or the benefit of their party or their selector at their specific clique rather than for the benefit of the public as a whole. Um, and it is entirely possible that a government could regulate social media in such a way as to advantage itself at the expense of other parties or, or rival claims. Um, a very good example of this is in China where social media is incredibly tightly regulated uh, by the Chinese Communist Party to block out alternative views, critiques of the CCP, and so on. Um, and that is also an extreme that we don't want to move towards. Very much so. And if I might be permitted to give a really boring and practical sort of answer to this, um, while social media posts pose in the short term, uh, a, a, do pose a serious problem in the short term for this sort of thing, for spread of misinformation, um, ultimately, I think uh, as as time goes on and as social media becomes more and more normal it's it's still novel for quite a few people but it's it's normal for many more um and there is there is a young generation coming through now that's never known anything else i think it will increasingly come to be seen as sort of similar to or the same as other forms of speech and whilst there are reasons why people treat social media differently to the way they speak normally um as with any sort of dangerous ideas about how a particular group of people are, are evil and, and, and ideas that beget violence generally, what matters and what's dangerous is that people hold those ideas somewhere. And ultimately, I do slightly worry that there is some sort of, uh, that there is a bit of a priority to dealing with this as 
an internet problem, as a social media problem, and not as a broad social problem which uh, manifests itself in lots of different ways and which that is just one of them. Uh, for example, uh, at the moment a lot of uh, football TV channels and things are running campaigns against uh, online online hate posting and, and, and racism online and things. And um, again, I do sort of wonder why it being online is ruled out for, is sort of singled out for criticism and I'm not saying that being racist to people online and sending horrible abuse to people um, via social media is is fine of course it's not um, my point is more that racism is racism is problematic regardless of whether you're shouting racist abuse at someone on the street or on Twitter and that in the long-term solution to any of this is going to have to be and this is one of those really boring words that we trot out every single week alongside dialogue um, an education that means generations are raised not believing in witches or QAnon or whatever and actually as I say that it reminds me these things do die and new ones appear I mean belief in witchcraft is in the way that it existed 200 years ago does not exist as far as I'm aware um, at least in this country I think, and again, this is something we've mentioned in in previous uh, episodes that we're in, we're both in fairly privileged positions where uh, we don't really bear the fallout for any of these um, these things which are said online um, and which whip up hate against certain minorities and groups. And so, while we might be able to discuss it abstractly as the marketplace of ideas and, and defeating these these bad thoughts in the marketplace of ideas for for people who are on the receiving end uh, or who are practically affected that's about effective as you know fighting the battle in Narnia or Middle Earth um, it's just it's just not uh, an immediate solution but fundamentally I do agree with you that in the long term the only way to get rid of these things is through sustained education um, I do think although social media is not the cause of these thoughts and these conspiracies this disinformation uh, it does amplify it in some ways um, which leads me to kind of my two very boring regulatory solutions. Um, the first one is that most social social media platforms, uh, most of their algorithms are designed to kind of push you towards more controversial content or to lock you further into a bubble uh, because the more controversial stuff you click on, uh, the more opportunities they have to show you ads and then get revenue from it. Um, and so many people will have noticed whatever social media platform they use that over the past few years, there's been a move away from chronological timelines or feeds where you just see everything that's come up in order uh, to feeds or timelines which are more curated by content and try to push you towards certain uh, content creators or providers and not show you others and try and funnel you uh, down what they think is a more lucrative or a route that can be better monetized by them. So my first solution would simply be to not allow that uh, because I think that is the root cause of a lot of radicalization on social media, the fact that these algorithms push people down increasingly polarized rabbit holes. Um, the second thing I would say is that there probably needs to be some kind of Ofcom equivalent for social media. Um, and Ofcom, as of 2020, has had some powers uh, to regulate social media, but they are very limited powers and they only apply to blatantly illegal things like selling drugs or child pornography. They don't apply to wider conspiracy theories and disinformation. Um, and fundamentally, I do think there needs to be uh, some independent regulation of social media. Um, the reason this is probably more tricky than independent regulation of the news media 
uh, is because the news media produces a lot but a fairly limited and discrete amount of content every day and you can kind of like vet it in a quite manageable way uh, whereas on social media unimaginable amounts of, of content um, are being pumped out every second so this uh, hypothetical offcom of social media would have to by necessity restrict its activities to a few figures or a few high profile figures or you know plat platforms or individuals with a certain follow account otherwise it would simply not be practical but i do think there needs to be some independent regulation otherwise it is purely a free-for-all i don't believe it can be left purely up to social media platforms because i don't think they have an incentive to do this responsibly i don't think it can be left purely up to the government because um I don't think that that's a particularly safe thing to do to give the government control of such a significant speech platform. Just to go back to um, my earlier point, just to sort of clarify something, uh, I do think there is a there is a false dichotomy that a lot of people generally believe in between short term and long term when we talk about policies and solutions like this. And, and, and you're absolutely right that education in these things is not in any way a short term solution and that short term some degree of solution is needed because, as you said, we are somewhat shielded from the results of these misinformation campaigns, but other people aren't, other people are hurt by these things. Um, that is a false dichotomy. Uh, just because something is only useful in the long term doesn't mean that it's better or worse than something that's only mean useful in the short term and that we can't have multiple policies to tackle something in, in, in both terms. To respond to the, the second thing you were saying there, I think this is one sort of uh, small part of an interesting process that's going on that, that causes a lot of uh, difficulties for liberals especially, but for, for people of various political stripes, which is that uh, allowing people the freedom to sort of live their lives in the way that they would like, to a certain extent means that lots of people choose to... Uh, surround themselves with people like them and there are various different mechanisms through which this happens whether it's to do with housing markets and the way that housing markets work and people tend to end up living surrounded by people of similar incomes for example or the jobs they do that mean that people end up surrounded uh, in their professional lives by people who have uh, similar educations and therefore similar backgrounds to them whether it is a sort of explicit bias of people preferring to socialize with people of a similar ethnic group or people of a similar educational background or people of a similar cultural background or whatever that given the freedom to live their lives as they wish people do tend to bubble themselves not everyone of course everyone's different but a large number of people tend to bubble themselves and this is problematic when it comes to these sort of dangerous cultural ideas which manifest in all cultures and in all these bubbles have have uh, falsehoods and untruths that are generally believed some are more dangerous than others some die quickly some don't and some become sort of pillars of belief of whatever that particular group is and the sort of massively oversimplified spherical solution in a, in a vacuum is that if these cultural groups uh, mix and discuss it's it's our old friend our old uh, panacea for everything dialogue um, then people uh, begin to see where other groups beliefs are, are better or make more sense or begin to see their beliefs in the light of someone from the outside and 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 begin to think about them more rationally but how you create that 
mixing situation, how you get those groups to, to talk to each other and to interact with each other and to work and live with each other, etc., without an over-paternalist state that infringes on the liberty that meant those people chose to live separately in the first place is, I think, a, a, a real problem for now, but, but previously as well. And social media and the bubbles that people place themselves in online is just one of the different ways in which that tension uh, manifests itself. And I think two things to lead on from that is, I, I do agree that that bubbling, which happens in, in real well, real in the sense of physical, in physical life, has has always been an issue. Um, if you look at any country in the world, there have always been ethnic minority ghettos, or there's always been segregation, uh, whether kind of enforced from above by a segregationist racist elite, or whether optional by minorities because they want to cluster towards people who they are more familiar with. Um, but to a degree, I would say that there are there are limits to physical bubbling, um, because yes, whilst in extreme cases you might have uh, kind of ghettos or um, people clustering very close to people that they agree with, on a day-to-day -day basis you usually interact with people of different political stripes or different ethnicities or religions or anything else. Whereas social media, I think, is, is fairly unique in the sense that you could, and that are being created, uh, entirely purist bubbles, uh, which can't be infiltrated and you're not exposed to outsiders, uh, and they are really approximating um, nearly total consensus on a particular set of extreme beliefs. So whilst physical bubbling has, has been an issue and uh, bubbles on social media are not unique in that regard, the homogeneity of the bubbles uh, is something which I think is new and therefore problematic. Um, the second thing you were saying I totally agree with, that it is a conundrum for, for people with a liberal worldview that uh, seemingly in order to break down these bubbles and create dialogue you have to take some decidedly illiberal steps. Um, the example I have in my head is that of Singapore, where in government-owned and government-regulated flats there are actually quotas for, for different ethnic minorities uh, to kind of enforce mixing between different ethnic groups in Singapore and to prevent uh, you know, bubbles forming of discrete ethnic groups who then don't interact with each other. And Singapore on the whole is quite successful as a multicultural society, um, but that has come about partially because of very illiberal enforced government paternalism. Obviously from a government policy uh, perspective then this is a very difficult problem to solve but something we have to remember that I think often gets forgotten in, in political and social problems is that it's not just the responsibility of the government to solve all issues and that individual action does make uh, a difference as well. So again I'm gonna I'm gonna bang the drum of dialogue but also bang the drum of of, of democratic society in which everyone's uh, sort of views and beliefs and actions matter and make a difference that as well as thinking critically and thinking deeply about what the government can do for this that individuals also are part of in everyone they speak to and everyone they interact with are part of the formation of these groups and the formation of these ideas and so if listeners sort of sat there terrified about um, all these different conspiracy theories and, and, and misinformed ideas that are potentially dangerous out there, um, one thing to do is is to challenge them as gently and as uh, empathetically as possible, remembering that the thing that is damaging to society and the thing that is bad here is the idea, not the person putting it forwards, and, and, and being clear to make that distinction. Um, that individuals have sort of a responsibility here as well, partly because, as we've said, 
it is so very difficult for the government to solve this problem through sort of ordinary policy routes. Uh, so obviously this is a very complicated issue with no hard and fast clear-cut solutions. So we'd really love to hear your thoughts. Uh, as always, you can visit our website, um, theviolet.net. You can contact us by email at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter with our handle at underscore theviolet underscore. Thank you for tuning in and we hope to see you next week.